If you found Genesis chapter 3, I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we're going to just read this morning two verses. These verses come in the context of the Lord cursing the serpent after the fall of Adam and Eve. Hear now the words of our God, which He uttered to that ancient serpent, which the book of Revelation identifies as none other than Satan himself. Beginning in verse 14, Moses wrote that the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now we're going to fixate this morning on just this one verse. Verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, these are enigmatic words. So we're asking that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this text. Bring this to bear on every heart in this room, including my own, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, what we call the Christmas story is only half the story. If when you think of Christmas, when you share the Christmas story with your children, if your mind instantly goes to the awestruck shepherds, if it immediately goes to the angelic hosts, the manger stall, and the magi's star, if that's where your mind goes instantly, you, you need to recognize that you're just reading one chapter in a much wider story, and, and it's not the first chapter. If your mind goes quickly to the song, to the melodies of Mary and of the angels, you're just singing the chorus, but there's a verse that precedes. You see, jumping ahead to these narratives that we all know so well, I mean, that's what most of us associate with Christmas. If you jump here, it would be somewhat like baking, well, making, I should say, a Christmas cookie. Cutting it out, decorating it, but never baking it. It looks good, it, but it's superficial. Nobody wants to eat that. It'd be like, as a husband, hanging up all the Christmas lights, working forever to get the house all decorated, and then not plugging the lights in. I mean, it looks like you did something in the daylight, but when the darkness of night comes, my word, that was a trivial act. You see, when you skip what comes before, the chapters that come before, these stories we know so well in Christmas, it's a little bit like decorating a Christmas tree, but failing to secure its base. And I have done that. And all that work is for naught. It might be a little bit like wrapping a gift box and making the wrapping perfect and putting a nice bow that you hand tied on it, but the box is empty. What a waste. It may be just like turning on a Christmas movie with your wife and starting two-thirds of the way in. Unless it's a Hallmark movie, and that is a wise move. Because the first third is always the same. 
The truth is when you skip the first, the first chapters of this Christmas story, you miss something profound. There's, that may be the reason why so many in this world, even believers, when they confront Christmas, they think of it as trivial, overly sentimental, hollow, filled with cliches. That's why so many believers struggle with the Christ of Christmas becoming, in all candor, nothing more than an ornament. Nothing more than an afterthought. A bow on a gift, but not the gift itself. It's why in this most wonderful time of the year that we all sing of, so many of us find joy, peace, and love eluding. So if that's you, I want to invite you today to rewind with me. And let's come back a step. Let's come a little before the angels. A little before the shepherds and the wise men. I want to invite you to do something. I want you to see the first half of the Christmas story. And I trust that when you do, what was once superficial will now feel substantive. What was once trivial is now going to strike you as critical. What was once hollow will now feel weighty to you. You see, I want you to see that the good news of Christmas began not in a manger, but it began actually in a garden. That the Christmas story began not with the incarnation, but actually at creation. That in truth, the genesis of Christmas is found nowhere else but the book of Genesis. Where it all began, not with an angelic announcement, but it began with a profound breathtaking, holy promise. Indeed, that's what I want to lay upon your heart this morning. If you're taking notes, mark this down. Hear this, that Christmas began with a profound promise. That's where the story begins. And we find it in Genesis chapter 3, particularly in verse 15. Now, you just read this with me. And I prayed that these words are not immediately clear. Bruise a head, bruise a heel. What is this? This promise will not strike you as profound if you do not understand when it was given and why it was given. You see, if you miss when, you might just yawn at this. And if you miss why, you may find yourself shrugging at this. Just uh, one of those archaic biblical verses that I'm sure has some importance, but I can't quite put my finger on it, particularly with Christmas. I want you to see with me, before we unpack this verse, the backdrop in which this promise is given. This promise is given immediately after the paradise of creation crumbled. God, the infinite creator, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, he had created this paradise and he called it very good. In particular, the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve, experienced perfect harmony with him. Until Genesis 3, as you well know, beginning in verse 1 and down to verse 13, everything falls apart. An infinitely holy God is sinned against by an infinitely low creation. And you would expect at that moment, you would expect in verse 14 and following, God to end this rebellion. But it should stun us all that we instantly see just three chapters into the Bible, the Lord give a breathtaking promise 
that you would not expect Him to give. You would expect a holy God to end it decisively. But in verse 15, we see the first instance of the Gospel proclaimed. The first time the Gospel graced the ears of man was in Genesis 3, verse 15. And I want you to see today that this promise is in essence a threefold promise. And if you can get a grip on what God promised to these men and women so early in this created world, I think you will find a steadying of your soul in turbulent times. I think you'll find this season that's oftentimes overly sentimental. I think you'll find it just a little bit more sobering as you see the Christmas story begin, not with angels, but it begins with a profound promise. Let's look at this threefold promise together. If you're taking notes, mark this down. Number one, it was a promise of mercy. Because notice I said, you would expect the Lord after the fall of man to judge. In truth, the Bible could have been three chapters long. It would have made sense. It would have been right and just in all creation for God to have ended it all after Genesis 3, 13. But in 14 and following, we see God respond in a way you wouldn't expect. Rather than responding with soul judgment, He responds with mercy. And I want you to see there's two shades to this mercy we see just in the first line of this verse. The first line of verse 15. The first line of this promise. First off, we see an unthinkable mercy. Notice He says, I will. After sin had entered the world, God responds and says, I am going to do something. He doesn't say, I must. He doesn't say, I should or I may. He makes a declarative statement of intent. I will, the Lord says, do something that I don't have to do. I am going to come and show you something that you would not have expected. Paul illustrates for the, this for us in one of my favorite texts in all the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, where he describes you and me as dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. You and I were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were just like Adam and Eve. We were blind like the rest of mankind. It could have put a period there, but then Paul gives us this great gospel hope which we first see evidenced in Genesis. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, He made us alive. God did this. God took the initiative. And so, brothers and sisters, just pause for a moment this morning and recognize that Christmas begins first with the initiative of God. He came and gave us an unthinkable mercy. If you think Christmas is expected, if you think Christmas is earned, if you think the Christmas story is something that you would expect God to do, just read Genesis 3.15 and recognize that we should be stunned that a promise like this even comes. It's an unthinkable mercy. Moreover, it's an unbelievable, unbelievable mercy. Because notice what he says next. He doesn't just say, I will. He says, I will put enmity between the serpent 
and the woman. Now that should strike us as miraculous because you and I, as the uh, offspring of the woman, as mankind born after Adam and Eve, we are not naturally an enemy of Satan. Who are we naturally an enemy of? By nature, we are at enmity with God. And God promises in this verse that He is going to supernaturally change something within us. He is going to put us at enmity, at war, with the one with whom we had just made peace. He is going to come and change us in such a profound way that we will now hate the one we loved and learn to love the one we despised. I want you to see that what the Lord is promising in this first half of this verse is He is basically giving us this hint that He is going to come and miraculously, unbelievably change the hearts of mankind. We who were once born naturally in the flesh, we hate God and we love, we love, we love darkness. He is going to supernaturally come and make we who were born of the flesh be supernaturally reborn of the Spirit. But the question we must ask is how? He's God. I guess you could presume that He would just do it. But in this verse, He shows us how He'll do it. And the way He does it is He promises that He's going to send somebody who wasn't born naturally like you and I. And we're going to see that this unnatural birth is the way we at last find ourselves transformed from the inside out. I'm getting ahead of myself because we need to see this in the next phrase. Don't take my word for it. Look with me, if you will, at the second half of this verse where he says, I'm going to put enmity not just between you and the woman, Satan. I'm going to put it between your offspring and her offspring. I want you to see in this second clause of this verse that right here, we have not just a promise of mercy. I want you to see that Christmas began, secondly, with a promise of hope. Hope is coming. God is granting us an unspeakable hope that one day He will transform us through the birth of another, through somebody unlike us. And you may think, my word, Kyler, you're adding into that because how on earth Are you getting that out of the latter half of of that verse? Between your offspring and her offspring? Where are you getting that? I want you to notice with me, those words, her offspring, are loaded. I want you to circle those words, underscore them. I want you to uh, think with me now. When the Lord promises somebody that is described as her offspring, here's what we're seeing. He's showing us that this promise of hope, it's an unusual promise. It's an unexpected one. And you may be thinking, I don't get that. Why is that unexpected? Now, you see that phrase, her offspring? Literally, that statement says her seed. In the Greek, her spermos. Now, that alone should draw all of our minds of maturity to recognize that doesn't make sense. You would not expect a seed to come from a woman. The Bible does not speak, nor would normal humankind speak of that reality. You see, what the Lord has promised instantly at the beginning of this Bible 
is that there is going to be one to come who is going to be born differently than you and I would be. We are seed of our fathers. We are seed of men. But there is going to come one who is going to be born in a way you would not expect. It's a singular seed. You'll see that. You would see that in the original language. There's one person he's promising to come to change everything. Moreover, you see that this is masculine. And we see that in particular in the next verse where he says that this seed of the woman is a he. And it is a miraculous because what, is, what this is inferring is that there is going to come a Savior who is going to be born not naturally from a father. He is going to be what we know as virgin born. This seed of the woman is unusual. It's not what you would expect. Now, this promise is echoed all throughout the Bible. Isaiah, in Isaiah 7.14, he prophesies of a virgin-born Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Matthew applies Isaiah's prophecy to Jesus himself in Matthew 1. Luke identifies Mary, the mother of Jesus, as a virgin. John identifies Jesus as begotten of his Father in heaven. Paul describes Jesus one at the same time as the Son of God born of a woman. I want you to see that this is an unusual hope that God is giving us. There is going to be a virgin-born man who would come to fulfill the promise God made at the very beginning of the Bible. It's an unusual hope. But I want you to see, in addition to that, this is an unshakable hope. And the reason why that's an important thing for us to wrestle with is the truth of the matter is there was a long time that elapsed between God making this promise in Genesis 3 and God fulfilling this promise in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's many years. And the whole story of the Bible is the story of God's people wrestling with is God going to keep this promise? Can God be trusted? Adam and Eve thought that God might keep that promise through their son Cain. Well, that didn't work out well. They thought he might keep the promise through their son Abel, who was slaughtered by their son Cain. They thought that it might come through Seth, but Seth ended up dying. You fast forward a little bit. Noah thought that God might keep his promise through one of his sons, him, Shem, Shem, Japheth. Didn't keep it through there. Okay, so what about Abraham? Great father Abraham. Was God going to keep this promise of the Savior through Abraham? No, he died. What about Isaac? No. Jacob? No. What about Judah or Joseph? No. What about Moses, the great deliverer, or his protege, Joshua? No. What about all the judges who ruled over the land and that great judge, Samuel, that prophet and judge? No, it wasn't Samuel. What about the great King Saul, or his successor David, or his successor Solomon? No. What about all the kings of the divided kingdom, or all the great prophets that God kept sending, these holy men of God, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, or Hosea, or Joel, or Amos, or Obadiah, or maybe Jonah? What about Micah, or Nahum, or Habakkuk? Maybe Zephaniah, or Haggai, Zechariah, or Malachi? Would it be any of these guys? After Malachi left the scene, there was 400 years of silence. And all God's people kept sitting here wondering, is God trustworthy? Will He keep this promise? Who will come and save us from our sin? Who is going to come? Who is going to be that seed of the woman? Who is He? 
until at last the silence is broken with the announcement of Gabriel. Where we see the seed of the woman heralded by angels, witnessed by shepherds, confirmed by Matthew, who himself in chapter 1 traces how Jesus is a descendant of this line that was promised. This one who is validated by the wise men, proclaimed by the prophet John the Baptist just a little later in his life. This Jesus is the fulfillment of God's long-held promise. And so I just want to invite you to take a step back with me before we continue through this text and reflect with me on the wonderful reality that for many of you in this room, you have been waiting for God to keep His Word to you for some time. Christmas is an acute reminder to wait and to watch. That's the spirit of Advent. Wait and watch. Wait and watch. Wait for God to keep His promise and watch. Because what I failed to mention as I traced Adam all the way down to Jesus is that there was an adversary mingled within. There was one making warfare as the people waited. The story of the Bible is one of hope wrapped with warfare. There was an enemy who sought to slaughter the seed, who sought to stop the coming of the Messiah. You see this most clearly when all the firstborn were killed in Egypt. And you see this again when Herod attempted to do it yet again in the New Testament. Satan sought victory, which brings us to number three, because I want you to see what this seed does when he at last arrives on the scene. Number three, if you're taking notes, mark this third and finally down. This is not just a promise of mercy and hope. It is, thanks be to God, a promise of peace, peace. For when this seed of the woman at last came to earth, when the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, what did He do? Did He come for a moral salvation? To just change the ethics of the day and finally get Israel living right? That's the stumbling block of theological liberals. A moral example. Did Jesus come to bring political Salvation, to free his people from their overlords, whether it be Egypt or Babylon, Assyria, or in this context, Rome. That's the stumbling block of Judaism. What did Jesus come to do? Was it for material salvation, to give us all the health and wealth any sane person would desire? That's the stumbling block of modern day heretics. What did Jesus come to do? The scripture is clear. And we're going to see this in this enigmatic last couple phrases. We see that this seed came to bruise the head of Satan and to in turn have his heel be bruised. What a bizarre thing to say. What is the Lord promising us 
when he says that this promised one is going to bruise the head of Satan and in turn have his heel bruised. I want you to see that in these two strange phrases, we see coming together inextricably a promise of peace. A peace that is impossible on our own. I want you to see that when this seed came, this seed came to purchase for us a peace that we could not conjure up in ourselves. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that this saying is trustworthy and it's worthy of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. And we see also John in 1 John 3, the latter half of verse 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those verses come together and show us in Genesis 3.15, the true reason for the season. These verses show us in essence why Christmas is critical. Why the incarnation is indispensable. They show us that the Prince of Peace was born, as the Christmas carol says, to bring peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. And He does it in two ways. On the one hand, I'll mark this down, He brings us a certain peace. For notice with me that phrase, He shall bruise your head. Strange word, but that word bruise literally means to crush. And in essence, He is promising that this seed is going to come and one day crush the head of the adversary. He is going to once and for all decisively and finally defeat this one who has been warring against God's people from the very beginning. We saw this uh, clearly shown at the end of the book of Romans just a couple weeks ago, where in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the Apostle Paul says that this God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so I just want you to step back with me and feel for a moment that Christmas is a guarantee that sin is not sovereign over your life. Christmas is a guarantee that suffering that you're going through is not meaningless, no matter how meaningless it may feel. Christmas is a guarantee that politics is not our hope, it is not everything. Christmas is a guarantee that truth one day will prevail. It's a guarantee that the church will survive no matter what man tries to do. Christmas is a guarantee that prayer is effectual. Indeed, it is powerful. It's a guarantee that Satan is finished and that peace is certain. Christmas is a guarantee that God, brothers and sisters, is faithful to you. One day, He will crush the head of the serpent decisively. But it comes at a great cost. I want you to see this was not just a certain peace promised in this first promise of Christmas. Lastly, it was a costly peace. For that last phrase, we ought not overlook. And you shall bruise his head, his heel. Bruise his heel. We know the word bruise means crush. What's going on with crushing a heel? 
This draws to our minds Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, which says Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. You see, nothing that's worthwhile comes easy. And Jesus, who purchased our peace by crushing the head of the serpent, did so at a great cost to himself. The cost of Christmas was the cross of Christ. The price of our peace were his nail-pierced hands, his bleeding brow, his gasping lungs, his beaten body, where upon that cross, as he hung and died, it appeared Satan in the final analysis had won. For after centuries of warfare, Satan at last looked up on the cross and saw the seed of the woman cry out with gasping breath, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, Satan saw a hint of victory. For the seed appeared to be bruised. It appeared this seed was finished. Until suddenly, shockingly, and decisively, before he breathed his last, this promised seed of the woman, born of a virgin, cried out with one final exhale, Tetelestai, it is finished. And in so doing, he crushed the head of the serpent. And that adversary who thought he had the upper hand at that moment knew his days were numbered. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is weightier than we realize. For the promise of Christmas was a promise of mercy. The promise of Christmas was a promise of hope. And thanks be to God, the promise of Christmas is a promise of peace. And for those of you in this room who have not tasted the mercy of God, who know not the hope of Christ, who have no peace in your soul, the call of Christ, indeed my plea to you today, is that you would confess your need for His mercy. That you would lay your soul before Him as it were and cry, mercy, O God. And His wonderful precious promise to you is that if you confess your sin before Him, He is faithful and just to forgive you of this sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But for the vast majority in this room, I trust. My call to you is just remember with me this Christmas, that the Christmas story we know and love is just half the story. Would you join me as we pray? And as we do, I invite each of you to respond as the Spirit leads. For most of us, I trust that means you should silently cry out to God and praise Him for His mercy, glory in His hope, and Stand in awe of the peace that He has given you. This week of Thanksgiving, thank Him. And ask Him this first Sunday 
of this Advent season as we wait for the coming of Christ, which we culturally celebrate on December 25th. Ask God to so move in your heart that you would sense the weight and wonder of Christmas. Indeed, the profound promise of mercy, hope, and peace. Father in heaven, I cannot do this. Their spouse can't do this. A child's mother and father can't do this. You must come, O God, and open our eyes, change our hearts. O God, remind us of the magnitude of Your mercy, the wonder of Your hope You bring, and the perfect peace that we cannot find anywhere but You. And protect the hearts of those who are seeking peace elsewhere, who are seeking hope in other things, and see not their need for mercy. Do this work now, we pray, O God, for the glory of Your name and the good of this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand with me, and as we do, we're going to sing. We're going to respond to the word proclaimed. Let's stand and proclaim the glory of our great King.